TSR, NAV, ETF. The capital markets almost seem to have a monopoly on abbreviations. And while total shareholder return and net asset value are still top of mind for many, there are three more letters that are proving to be just as important. ESG. There are 26 ESG exchange traded funds and mutual funds. They've got about 250 million in assets uh, under management. And 19 of those funds outperformed the S&P 500. They actually rose between 27.5% and 55%. And in comparison, the S&P was 27%. But ESG isn't just an indicator of a good investment. It's the mark of a sustainable, responsible, and conscientious organization. If companies don't address other stakeholders, they're not going to be a sustainable company. You know, if you're a company that is manufacturing everything with single-use plastics, if you don't have a plan to reduce single-use plastics over time, that's not a sustainable business model for you because of societal expectations. This is Financial Futures, the podcast that charts the frontiers of fintech innovation. In this series, we'll be exploring the opportunities and challenges facing the capital markets and diving into the trends that are reshaping the way institutions operate in this rapidly evolving industry. I'm your host, Erin Dangler. And today, we're dissecting ESG with the help of Executive Vice President and Head of Strategy and Solutions Management at FIS, Tony Warren, and Chief Sustainability Officer and Head of Global Public Policy at FIS, Andrew Sheffardini. We'll be exploring what ESG factors are, and we'll discuss some of the challenges associated with determining an investment's rating. We'll also ask what is prompting this new focus on ESG among investors and investees, and we'll reveal the benefits for institutions with ESG offerings in their portfolio. First, the basics. Here's Andrew to break down what exactly ESG is. We'll start from the basics here, but there is so much going on. And ESG really, there's a lot of different ways to think about what it is. And when I think about and take a step back, it's really about how is a company or an organization thinking about the impact they have in society and on societal stakeholders, whether those be clients, employees, regulators, investors, and then society is law at large. And there's different factors. Every company has an impact across the environment, across different social issues, across different governance factors that make you a sustainable company going forward. So when I really think about what ESG really is, it's how are you managing those impacts on society and what are you doing to make the most positive outcomes for these societal issues? And that's what really this is about. Great. So can you just break down the acronym for us, the E, the S, the G? Sure. Well, the biggest one that you hear about on a regular basis is the environmental, right? And everybody, no matter what kind of business you're in, have an, an impact on the environment. And when we think about the climate issues facing the world right now, mostly showing up with extreme weather, but ultimately if our temperature of the earth continues to rise, it is, is the expected negative impacts, whether that be droughts, temperature warming, whether that be coastal flooding, the ice caps, the acidification of the ocean, all kinds of things. And every company plays a part in addressing that because every company uses energy. Most of our energy created by fossil fuels really adds a major impact to that. 
and investors globally are thinking about this and saying, hey, our shareholders expect us to address and only invest in companies that are willing to tackle this. And then how do we really get and tease that out in, in our investment strategy going forward? Social varies widely depending on what kind of industry you're in. But a number of issues that really fall into the social category are how are you managing your workforce? Are you treating employees fairly? Are you treating them, making sure that they're safe in the workplace? Are you contributing to training and education beyond what's mandatory for the job to really talk about societal benefit? Are your employees engaged? What's the kinds of diversity and inclusion levels in your company? Those are big issues. And then some of them link back to what's your purpose as a company. So for a company like FIS, our purpose really is about empowering the digital economy. And one of the things that we have a societal obligation to do as a company is make sure nobody's left behind as the economy becomes more digital. So we think about things like financial inclusion. And then finally, in governance, governance issues vary again, depending on the type. But for someone like FIS, governance issues could be around data privacy, data usage, operational resiliency. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about those things because we know investors are concerned about how are you addressing those topics. Absolutely. And it, I mean, it almost seems a little bit counterintuitive in a financial industry where usually you think of finance as about amassing wealth. And this trend has kind of taken off. Where do you think it's rooted in? You know, is it the movement in the 60s and 70s for more philanthropic and socially conscious investment initiatives? Or was it even before that? The shift has really gone from a broader look at stakeholder capitalism when you really look at what's going on in the world, right? From the World Economic Forum saying, hey, shareholder, of course, table stakes and investments don't really work if the financials aren't there and the company isn't producing for its shareholders, no doubt about it. But what we're finding is if companies don't address these other stakeholders in stakeholder capitalism, they're not going to be a sustainable company. You know, if you're a company that is manufacturing everything with single-use plastics, if you don't have a plan to reduce single-use plastics over time, that's not a sustainable business model for you because of societal expectations. And so all the stakeholders have to be considered. And when you address the stakeholder needs, in addition to the shareholder focus, that's what we're really seeing a shift across the world. And I genuinely think, I mean, just to build on that, Andrew, as well, I, I think if you look at, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, many countries, retirement planning was more either handled both by the state and by uh, companies, you know, who would give uh, gold-plated uh, defined benefit retirement schemes. And that has completely shifted now for this generation. And so most a mature economies now is all dependent on defined contribution, whether it's a 401k plans or different flavors of that around the world, you know, for superannuation products. And hand in hand with that, you've got education and you've got complete transparency of information. And so in a way, as younger people are growing up and they're becoming now the new middle class, they're the ones who will be driving a lot of the investments. It's hardly surprising really that they're saying, okay, I can actually make a difference where my uh, savings are going. I just find it such a fascinating concept. And for an industry that's so numbers oriented, how do firms measure ESG factors? I think we've seen this emergence of ESG as a core factor to the investment thesis going forward. I think the world is really trying to figure out how we do measure this appropriately because 
It will take time to evolve to what are the right standards, what are the right measurements going forward. And globally, we're really seeing that play out right now. Investors are asking, how do I make the right comparisons going forward? And so there are a variety of ways that they're currently measuring things. One is there's obviously a whole ESG rating agency industry out there. And there are a number of firms that are doing specific ratings of a company on their E, S, and G factors. Some weight climate and environmental issues more important, some weight social issues more important. So even when you look at the scores between different agencies, it's not quite clear which one is the best matchup for you. But a lot of the investment base does rely on some of those ratings out there. But again, how is this going to evolve and how do you get a really composite view of that going forward that you can make a best judgment as a firm? Secondly, some firms are building in-house their own analysts that either sit alongside their portfolio managers or under a portfolio manager to look at their specific investment portfolio. And I spend a lot of time speaking to investors about these issues and trying to understand what they're trying to tease out and what's important to them versus another investment firm. And then, you know, you have things like the global sustainability reports that companies like ours put out. And we try to align to metric frameworks reporting the information. But I will say here is what you also see out there is there's industry specific ratings. Every industry has issues that are most material to them. And so that also presents another challenge, right? Because how do you compare a software and services company that has one set of material issues versus another that may have a different set of material issues, right? And how do you harmonize? So lots of interesting opportunities uh, for products and services to evolve to meet these needs going forward. It sounds like we're uh, laying down the track while the train is coming, like it's happening all very organically and in the moment. We're good engineers though, Aaron. We're we're fast. (laughs) Of course. No, but that's how change happens, really, is something is needed and and you, you start chugging along. So, Tony, tell us about these ESG scores. Could you give us an example of a good ESG score? And is that enough to allow investors and institutions to make financial decisions? I think therein is part of the problem that we have today. We are in catch-up mode, to be fair, on the data and the, let's call it the usability of the data in the capital markets industry. So there was actually um, the Index Industry Association had a survey in 2021, and they spoke to asset managers, and they actually got back that they continued really to be plagued by a lack of standardized data. And indeed, 60% of asset managers consider the lack of data the challenge to implementing very sound ESG investing principles. Again, another 60% said that the lack of agreed upon ratings among the data providers posed a challenge to them. And uh, again, another 60%, so all over all over half of those surveyed, that the companies themselves that they're investing in are not still transparent enough about their ESG activities. And I think it's a nut that is going to be relatively easy to start to crack with the advent of more openness to data, more tools that we can synthesize data, scrub data, and then present it alongside the security or or the dead instruments that are representing a company that you can then start to rate portfolios. So I don't think it's far away. And I think over the next year or so, we're actually going to start to see more and more product, which should start to meet the demand, which is just rising at such a pace for ESG-style investing. (music) 
even with the challenges presented by disparate scoring systems, non-standardized data, and a lack of transparency among some organizations, there's still a very clear demand from investors and institutions for investments with favorable ESG scores. And perhaps the reason for this lies in the resilience and profitability of ESG investments, especially during the pandemic. So uh, according to S&P, between March the 5th, so the day and the month that the World Health Organization officially declared the COVID-19 pandemic, to March the 5th of uh, 2021. So there are 26 uh, ESG exchange traded funds or ETFs and mutual funds. They've got about 250 million in assets uh, under management. And 19 of those funds outperformed the S&P 500. They actually rose between 27.5% and 55%. And in comparison, the S&P was 27%. And now hand in hand with that, other surveys, I've got tons of surveys for you. So there was a report that Invesco did and it showed that 90% of respondents aged under 45. So to my earlier point, they're now stating it matters where their money is invested and they want to see their money invested responsibly. And in addition to that, three quarters of the older generation. So a little lower than obviously 90%, but I think it is a a holistic phenomenon. And that also showed that 52% of those respondents who currently do not invest sustainably uh, expect to be switching their investment strategy within the next 12 months. So look at, you know, it's really clear that the pendulum is swinging and the industry and the platforms have to absolutely uh, react to support this. And, And quite frankly, you know, We need to support this uh, for our customers. And to put it into some more uh, facts and figures for you, so by 2025, ESG assets, they're on course to exceed 50 trillion. So that's more than a third of the projected 140 trillion of uh, total global assets under management in the world. So, you know, this isn't some pet project on the side anymore. This is absolutely mainstream and it's going to continue to uh, balloon and grow. Another hot off the press, Tony, a statistic I saw recently right in line with your trend of by 2025, and I actually think we'll get there uh, maybe even earlier, 43 trillion in assets today by nearly, you know, almost half the asset management sector globally by institutional funds are already pledged to a net zero target, right, on the environmental side. So the expectation now for ESG performance is significant. So it really is. I mean, it's here and it's growing and it's not going away. These investors really want the ESG label. So let's talk about that. They want to invest in companies that are governing with ESG principles. Do they want the label or do they want to know that they're actually meeting these ESG values? I think it's both. But I I think what we're going to see is investors are going to want proof that their investees are meeting ESG values. Uh, But I'll go back to that first point. So the industry's got to crack that data issue to allow this to really uh, then flow through. But there's a growing trend now for for ESG data providers to start to adopt uh, ESG reporting standards by external organizations such as the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board and the Task Force on on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Uh, But at the moment, they can't set 
um, mandatory rules on data verification. So I think, you know, that there is still a gap. But clearly, if you think about this, and I'll just give you another another couple of factoids, but millennials as a whole, they're going to they're gonna inherit uh, some 68 trillion from us, the baby boomer parents, by 2030. And these guys, you know, they are making these deliberate choices in their investments around climate change, around social justice, and they have a lot of a higher interest in investing that's aligned to their values and the future, you know, the future's in their hands. And you see some of the the younger uh, lobbyists today on the news all the time, so it really sort of uh, verifies that. But the point I want to make is when you're seeing such a fundamental shift, the industry is going to have to show more transparency with the data to prove that the investees are meeting ESG values, this is going to swiftly turn into a regulatory issue for the industry that you have to be validating and verifying the data in order then to be able to uh, sell, trade the collective product uh, back to the investor. Yeah, and I I think we're going to see, to Tony's point and to your earlier question about how does this get validated, one is Tony's talking about the tools and technologies and those that you're working with to develop the products and services to do that assurance. But there is now going to be that compliance oversight from the government going forward. And we already know that the Securities and Exchange Commission, by this fall in the United States, is going to set out uh, a number of either principles or very prescriptive rules and regulations around how some of this data is reported. And in particular, around the environmental side and the climate side, and uh, potentially even around the diversity inclusion side. They've already had some voluntary disclosures over the last couple of years around human capital management and how you should be reporting some of those things. But you're going to see more of that in line. So it won't be just become a voluntary thing anymore. They you know, will now be required to be disclosed in a certain way that is in a regulated way and that you have to make sure that you have that assurance. And many companies, as, as Tony had, has said, also are looking at just like you get your financial results audited and validated by an independent auditor, I think that will be the trend as we've already seen by third-party auditors to be monitoring the company's data as well. So how are firms communicating this with their clients about their ESG investments? I think in order to transform this into holistic ESG scores, because it is going to complicate the investment process somewhat. So I would say what we're already seeing is a mixture of human analysts, but leveraging uh, new technologies. So artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science tools. And indeed, that's what we're doing here at FIS. You know, that's our plan in order to enrich the data. But the software via APIs can then be used to analyze a firm's data set. And then we would use internal algorithms that can test and validate the various uh, uh, investment decisions and look at predictive insights uh, into it. Andrew, anything to add? No, I'd agree exactly with with what Tony said. I mean, it is especially when we think about our you know investment firm and capital markets clients. Right? Is how do you do this at scale? Because looking at a whole portfolio of investments as we go forward, and obviously most of the Fortune 500 companies have adopted some level of ESG reporting and sustainability reporting and across certain frameworks, but there's a much wider universe of investment than than just the Fortune 500 companies, right? So. It really is about how are you defining those data elements? How are you making them visible in a way that then can be captured and consolidated and synthesized in a new way to provide those insights uh, on a company, just like financial data? And um, it may be a bit of a hybrid approach, but certainly we really need to be able to scale with technology to be able to do this well long term. 
And as we can see, this is all good stuff. I mean, that, that just to boil it down to very basic language. And yet it seems like it's it may be extra work to get it going, but the return on the investment will be very valuable to firms in the future, but it's affecting how firms are working. Can you talk a little bit, Tony, about how this is changing the role of financial industries, of risk managers, of fund managers in working in this way? Absolutely. So, so I think, you know, firstly, risk managers and fund managers, they need to educate confidentially their clients to ensure they understand what they're investing in. And I think if you look at the market today, perhaps it's more at the macro level. From what I can see, the rebalancing into more ESG style portfolio tends to happen on the wealth platforms. But I think that's going to start to shift into asset management itself. So, you know, everything we've just spoken about, the data and the ratings, actually dropping that down to the individual security level so you can get full transparency into everyday funds, you know, whether they're 40 Act funds or USITs or ICs, et cetera, that are processed today. So I could almost foresee um, a rating that gets published with an NAV so you can see that the fund is indeed sustainable. And then the investors are then freer to make their choice, as are the wealth providers, but without it being a a more um, sort of pure green fund, let, let's say. But there was another, yet another survey, Invesco did one, and it showed that around 42% of advisors, uh, they were pointing to a lack of knowledge being the biggest barrier when allocating to sustainable uh, strategies. And indeed, hand in hand with that, feel that the terminology can be confusing, a little too much jargon, and that there's uh, not enough accessible literature today to be able to give uh, more guidance. So I think education is still probably ongoing to help with the right language when talking to clients. So in, in talking about firms, buy and sell side firms, other than the positive impact on environment and society, can you tell them what other benefits they'll get from ESG offerings in their portfolio? On the sell side, certainly our experience to date, I mean, the focus is much more on climate risk and transitioning to renewable energies. Banks are focused on helping customers measure and optimize their, their counterparts' exposure uh, via those advanced risk solutions and services. From the buy side, as I think we, you know, we've made quite plain here, it's more about investor sentiment. It's shifting at such a dramatic rate. So asset managers need to quickly act to support ESG requirements. So their portfolio, as, as I alluded to before, will need to be broken down and, and scored accordingly. And in order to do that, they'll have to normalize the data with it. Capital markets firms, I think, will continue to publicize their commitment to providing ESG-focused products. And there will be a divergence between uh, public-facing trends and internal priorities, of course. But we actually did a, our own survey that we do every year. And uh, surprisingly, it was surprisingly few had this as a high priority but I think, I still think it's going to continue to, um, uh, to grow at, at, at quite a surprising rate. The challenges surrounding ESG ratings and the data that dictate them aren't just an issue of technology and standardization. They're also an issue of education. And institutions, risk managers, and fund managers need to evolve and equip themselves with the right tools and knowledge in order to navigate the various rating agencies and terminology so they can make the best decisions and give their clients the best advice. And if they can do that, the benefits they'll reap will go well beyond positive environmental and societal impacts.
Tony earlier talked about the outperformance of companies focused on ESG, and we, we tend to sometimes just focus on the risk, right, and the risk to the transition to a low-carbon economy, the risk of single-use plastics, as I mentioned earlier, or, or other risks for energy companies that you know haven't made a shift to you know more renewable energy sources and, and part of their portfolio. But really, I think the companies that are doing right and the, that what investors can also be looking for is when you think through this new ESG mindset, what are the opportunities that that creates. And that's something that I'm even internally at FIS going, okay, you know, the decarbonization risk, we know, you know, these are things that we have to do to reduce societal impact, but what can we do as a company to seize the opportunities brought by these issues? And, and nine times out of 10, as a company starts to look at the societal expectations, they find, wait a minute, here's a huge opportunity to go serve a market or develop a product that hasn't existed before. And that is the real upside opportunity to look forward to and what our investors and capital markets can be thinking about. Yeah, well, that was one of the things that I thought was so interesting when I was researching is that the financial industry is a risk averse industry. And actually companies that are governing themselves with these ESG principles are reducing risk and it makes a better investment overall. Certainly. And as I mentioned, obviously, every company should be looking at it from a risk perspective first. And just like we were talking about on like single use plastics, right? You've got it. If you're developing products or services and or products and single use plastics, you, you really need to figure out how to, to transition to something that's um, more sustainable long term. Same thing when you think about how do you do your business model? You know, the shift to renewable energy, for instance, right? If you can start, I was just on with an energy outside council yesterday talking about energy projects and solar energy. And I said, typically, what is a, what's a solar project on the roof of a large retailer produce? And they said it could be upwards of 50% of the you know daily use of energy, right? Just think about that. You're not only eliminating your carbon transition risk, but now you're cutting your cost as a company going forward, right? Now by self-generation of that energy usage. And I think there's multiple examples like that. You know, when we think about data privacy issues, right? I mean, those are ones that all of tech is struggling with, right? How do you handle data privacy? But the groups that have really figured it out and come out and said, this is how we have the right balance around it, right? They've reduced their risk, but also become a more trusted partner, right? In terms of that consumer facing benefit going forward. So I think there's dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of examples of that risk reduction, plus that project and, and product and service opportunity. Improving your brand image. And companies, again, that, that governed with these principles did better during COVID, the research shows. No, absolutely, Aaron. And look, there's a government side to it as well. I mean, as you can hear from the accent, I'm the other side of the Atlantic and, and our government, they're serious about this stuff and it's being accelerated rather than pushed out. I mean, I think it's changed from the top down. And I think it really, you know, people are sitting up and they're taking note and it, it is changing behavior without a shadow of a doubt from both the individual and corporation. But the good news here, you know, is that I represent the technology build for the financial services industry, which is driving the money, let's say, and the investments through. And Andrew's at the other end, like driving what companies should be doing. And I think if I look at our investments, from a strategic point of view, we're, we're combining these clear macro trends for 
what we need to be doing with then the latest and greatest technology. And that's why I think this is the picture is going to complete over the next couple of years at quite a rapid space. And the reason is this is going to produce and it has been producing so much more data and overhead. So firms are having to reconcile the quantitative data such as the ESG scores and the qualitative data. So the, the human analysts together But what we're going to do now is we're going to use the new tools. So we're evolving our infrastructures. We're opening up the APIs. We're letting the data flow into these new um, uh, data lakes and mega databases, let's say, where we can then augment with the additional uh, ESG uh, data. But it's the artificial intelligence, which I think is now going to pivot everything because using AI tools, we can assist that static data score so we can synthesize it, we can structure it and take away that kind of overwhelming element that's there today. And I think it will also start to address some of the gray areas in the numerous frameworks and lack of disclosures as well and check against specifics as well. So have you heard of greenwashing, Andrew? Absolutely. This phenomenon of greenwashing. So technology that's smart enough to sniff out greenwashing where they're claiming that they act more responsible than they really are and having um, data in conjunction with with the analysts. And, and then all of this, at the end of the day, will feed into the algorithms. It will do the rebalancing for the ETFs, the different styles of fund. So super exciting. And I'm delighted we've got people like Andrew who are giving us that guiding light and principle of the subject. And now we're putting that into action across our platforms. Well, I think you hit it right on the head with greenwashing, Tony, in the sense of a lot of companies can put out a flashy press release about this little thing or that little thing that they're doing. And that's great. But sometimes the underlying data, the underlying disclosures don't really support that messaging or those sort of claims at the high level. And that's, to your point, essentially what that greenwashing is all about, right? Look over here, not over here at the real thesis and the data going forward. And so teasing that out and really making sure that investors can do that going forward is is of critical importance. So as we're gaining momentum with this, what do institutions need to do to make sure their infrastructures are ready to handle this data? I think, you know, this industry has typically been made up of different departments moving from front, middle, back office, and they're siloed by functionality Historically, now what we've been working very hard at is really opening that up. So we're breaking down those silo departments and we're breaking down the fragmented systems so we can create frictionless data flows through open APIs and then exposing that data. It will now allow us to incorporate the scrubbed and the synthesized ESG data to then create all of the different outcomes we need, whether it's um, risk assessment for, let's say, climate change, or whether it's uh, doing the ESG ratings and driving them through the granular level of the portfolio. So as I said at the start, I think this is one of the most exciting things for us as a supplier, because this is an opportunity for us to both shape the industry and uh, truly make a difference in the process by providing the right platforms for the uh, transition to occur on. 
you hit it right on the head. And I think what we're seeing too is all of this is moving in parallel, right? When you think about what the companies are reporting, what the data flows could be, what we need to do to enable sustainable finance and more broadly, quite frankly, sustainable commerce, right? When you think about the breadth and depth of what FIS does. And there's not a week that goes by that I you know, haven't seen another data feed or how we're going to report this data. I do think what's going to be really exciting is within this next several months, at least for U.S. investors, there might be a real stake in the ground, which I think then will be a foundation for which at least U.S. reporting may build off of. And that will start to at least get a little bit more focus on what our investors need, what capital markets companies need to be considering going forward in the disclosure regime. So I think there's some really exciting foundations being laid that are going to be really solid for the future. Everything's globally is not going to be harmonized anytime soon or maybe ever. I mean, even under our listed companies regimes and different things in different parts of the world, there's no harmonization in those kinds of things, nor should we expect uh, that to be. As we wrap up the program, I'm I'm heartened to hear this, just to think I grew up a child of the 80s. You know, I'm a Gen Xer where, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. So it's nice to think about investing in a way that's, you know, maybe not just helping me financially, but really is, if I can sound so cheesy, making the world a better place. So if you have any parting words, please share. No, I just think, as Tony mentioned, we've got this sort of yin-yang partnership and what's most fun about it. And if you look at our sustainability report, you know, we talk about advancing the ways the world pays banks and invest, but you also see in that sustainability report about how we're working on advancing sustainability. And that's both with our products and services, as Tony is leading up, as well as becoming a sustainable company ourselves. Exactly. I couldn't put it better. So I'll leave it at that. Tony Warren is Executive Vice President and Head of Strategy and Solutions Management at FIS, and Andrew Sheffardini is Chief Sustainability Officer and Head of Global Public Policy at FIS. That's it for today's show. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time when we'll be exploring BPASS and cloud technology as we discuss the avenues to growth in the capital markets.